Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, David Mann. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Hour two of the radio program. This is the Past Ball Show, of course, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. And don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli as we continue to keep the program interactive. I'm going to jump right into an interview that I recorded with longtime Major League outfielder Jay Johnstone. And, of course, Jay had an opportunity to play for the Angels, the White Sox, the Athletics, the Philadelphia Phillies, the New York Yankees, the San Diego Padres, Los Angeles Dodgers, Chicago Cubs, and then the Dodgers again before he retired after the 1985 season. Two-time World Series champion, uh, was uh, made a cameo in a movie, Naked Gun with Leslie Nielsen, which we talk about, which I, uh, you know, still one of my favorite movies of all time. And of course, was known for being one of the ultimate pranksters with the hot foots and locking Tommy Lasorda and, uh, you know, in the, in, the uh, in, a, in a room and stuff like that. So I'm going to get right into it. We'll play this interview I recorded with longtime Major League outfielder Jay Johnstone. Right now, I'm joined by former Major League outfielder Jay Johnstone. Jay, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Oh, pretty good, man. Pretty good. Hey, Jay, if you get, I don't know where you are. Well, it's starting to get hot. I mean, it's up around, uh, probably in around the mid-80s today. So it uh, looks like the start of... We're getting that heat out here in California. We're in a drought. Man, we need, some, we need uh, somebody to get up in the clouds and feed them and do something or somebody to get up there and do something. All our farmers are dying out here, man. They can't get any water to water the crops. Everybody's freaking out. Nah, that's horrible, man. And then, you know, obviously it leads to, like, the fires and stuff. And uh, there's, always, there's, always, there's always bad situations out there that start without, you know, the lack of rain. And, you know, people always... Months ago, those big fires in San Diego were so dry down there. They're kind of just trying to get some fires and clean the water and marine down there. Yeah, that's horrible, man. It really is. Hopefully, uh, hopefully things get out a little better. You get a little rain over there, and uh, you know, obviously, you, you could use that to just keep the temperature down, and hopefully, things will be a lot better. Yeah, man. That's a lot of the water. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, what they're talking about in the latter part of the year, 
they're talking about El Nino coming in. So if that happens, that would, the farmers only guys that love that because then we get a lot of water. But then again, we're about flooding and all that stuff. So I mean, it's like one disaster after another. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah, you figure there's a little bit of a little bit too much of anything is usually too much. So there, there's no there's no steady street, you know. Yeah, I can't figure it out. <laughs> Never works out there. People in the Midwest with those twisters. My gosh, I feel terrible for them. You know, you look at some of those pictures of those guys in the Midwest and the whole town is flattened. I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's really, that's yeah, I thought you said it yourself too. It's uh, one disaster after another. You know, if it's uh, you know if it's not a tornado or something, it's a hurricane, or you know, you deal with a drought or a wildfire, and it's just you know, it's unfortunately one thing after another. Do you remember? And obviously, you go back a little further than I do. Do you remember a, a situation like maybe other than within the last five years? Where you saw so many natural disasters, like one after another, or within such a short period of time? Ever. Ever. And I, you know, I was down in California, but I played in Chicago, and I played in Philadelphia, and I uh, traveled a lot to Texas. You know, Texas gets through some problems a few times. You know, they can have some issues down there between the heat and the, and the rain. But um, I, uh, I go down there because I work through a lot of stuff for the military. And uh, so I did some hospitals and the Burns and the Prosthesis down there in Dallas and San Antonio. So I go down and see our troops down there, but... Yeah, they've got some pretty bad issues. And then the Panhandle, they get those windstorms. So, that, yeah, it's not just specialized in one area. It's all over this whole country. Yeah, it absolutely is, man. Hopefully, uh, you know, things kind of mellow down a little bit and we can at least try to just get through some, some normal weather, man. But then again, what, what's normal? <laughs> you know, the good part about it is if you're playing baseball and the wind's blowing out, you love it because the ball carries a long way, you know? <laughs> yeah, very true. Once again, John Pielli here with Jay Johnstone. Now, Jay, um, just take, take us back when you when you were a kid. Uh, what what was it that got you into baseball? You know, when did you start playing, and you know, when did you realize that you know maybe you had a future in it? Back in eighteen hundred and fifty, maybe not quite that far. Uh, I um, my dad um, we lived in West Virginia, and um, he got me involved in little league, and there was a coach there named Gib Maxson, and Gib Maxson was basically the uh, director of um, uh, athletics for the city of West Covina. And so he, um, I ended up on Gib Max's team. Um, and Gib was a terrific coach. I mean, you know, you, you talk about a guy that really goes out of the way to help kids and stuff like that. And, you, and we're talking about nine years old now. Literally back then was nine to 12, and then, you know, or nine to 11 and 12 through whatever, then you got the pony league. Yeah. And, um, and so we played, in fact, where our Louis Park was, the West Green National Louis, they had built the West Green Courts and the, uh, uh, the uh, jailhouses and the police station all that area. Now it's all, uh, all political. But that's where the league did West Green National League, and it was really fun. The only bad part about it, my dad was a, uh, a coach on the team, and after the game, uh, I'd have to help him go rake underneath the uh, bleachers. Back then, you had the bleachers that people would eat candy and hot dogs and soda and stuff like that. throw all the wrappers down underneath the bleachers, right? Then we have to clean them up. And so, you know, I said, oh, Dad, I don't want to do this. Come on, come on. So I did it the first time, and I didn't like that. I did it the second time. But the next time, I found a 50-cent piece. <laughs> then I found a quarter. And I found a couple of dimes. And then the next week, I found some more money. I found more quarters and more than I found a dollar bill. And now, 
if we didn't have enough people. And we were a brand new school. We were the first uh, class uh, to come into Edge High School as a freshman. And uh, so, but it was so much fun. You know, and I look back on all those friends and people I've had. Like I said, I still try to stay in touch with a lot of them, you know. No, of course. But, uh, that's where I got my start. And somebody, you know, somebody, they really wanted me to play football. I had to, like, let me throw scholarships to play football as a quarterback. Now, what? The white guy, I, ran the, I was pretty fast with the white guy. I ran 199. <laughs> pretty fast back then. No, of course, And man. so I got a chance, and Will Nelson took me up, and, you, and his brother Phil to Utah State. Uh, Craig Flitter took me out to USC. Billy Kilmer took me over to UCLA. Uh, I went back and I visited uh, Washington. And I went to Washington, Washington State. It's too cold for me. I loved Utah State. It was really pretty, but it was too cold. I went over to Arizona and Arizona State, and the girls were absolutely gorgeous. You know, in high school, you look at the girls over this way. And wow, they had the prettiest girls I've ever seen. But I, I, uh, I was, my greatest thrill was going back and having lunch with Woody Hayes at Ohio State. And I went back there to talk to him about a football scholarship and play football as a quarterback. They were recruiting me. And, uh, you know, at, at, uh, at 17, uh, you're, you're very young, you're very immature, and you really don't know a lot about going on. And so going back to meet with Hayes, uh, sitting across here having lunch, he was telling me, first he showed me the locker rooms, he showed me the field, he told me about the history of the game, he went through all the stuff, how great Ohio State was. And then we're sitting there, and he's looking at me, and I guess my mouth must have been wide open. And he's been talking, you know, about all the stuff like that. And he looked at me. He said, it's okay, Jay. We all out talking at this school. Yes, I just for so many minutes, my mouth was wide open. I didn't say anything. <laughs> and uh, I started laughing. He started laughing and stuff like that. But I, uh, I, I made one mistake in visiting all those schools. And that was um, 17. I, I didn't know the protocol. So when I went to these schools and saw how pretty and beautiful and how scenic uh, that the Utah was and how pretty up in uh, Washington State and the mountains and everything. And, of course, Colorado was gorgeous. And, uh, and Arizona had the beautiful women. And, of course, SC is SC and UCLA is UCLA. And everywhere I went, they would ask me, what do you think of our school? I said, oh, this is fabulous. This is great. Now, remember, I'm going from West Covina. We got the Bob's Big Boy in in and out and all orange trees, nothing else, okay? <laughs> Yeah, and we had an old movie theater that was right down the road. You had to go a long way to see it, you know. So that was it, the whole town. That was our seven. We had Bob's Big Boy and in and out. And so, uh, so they asked me, what did I think of the school? I said, wow, this is great. I said, I love it. This is just so pretty. They said, well, if you like it, why don't you die this letter? I said, okay. So after I signed my 11th letter of intent. <laughs> you hear that? Yeah, I heard 11. 11. Wow. Football people didn't know what to do. We had the rights to me or who was going to get them or whatever. 
and he was going to want to have to play baseball. So we want you to play baseball. I said, yeah. He said, all you got to do is sign this letter. He said, no problem. So I signed a contract with the Angels, and that's how I got out of all my football problems. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny about the way, you know, the way it ends up working out. So you think that, you know, maybe... It really was because I just said, what the hell's another letter? He said, I'll sign it. That's right. I went into baseball. And uh, like I said, I didn't, you know, at 17 years old, we didn't have attorneys. And, you know, my parents weren't uh, that knowledgeable about going to college, which you couldn't, couldn't sign. All these people were recruiting me. And it was so, and, you know, just getting out of West Carolina. Uh, and going to those places and visiting, I was like heaven, and uh, I just, yeah, I started signing all the letters. I'm so happy about that. I mean, Roland Heenan, the guy who signed it for the Angels, I periodically see him every now and then. We just did a dinner this February down at the baseball letters in there. And uh, I said, you heard about all those letters you signed for football. I said, I'm sure we got you for baseball. So, yeah, we laughed about it a little bit, but uh, like I said, the, I didn't have an idea that we were only allowed to sign one letter. And, and to be honest with you, I would have loved to play football. I love football. But, uh, you know, like the, the, probably the smartest thing I did was play baseball. I love no, of course. So you think you think that it's possible if, uh, let's say, the Angels didn't come, you would have made a decision somewhere and maybe 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 even playing football? Oh, without a doubt. I, I think the Hayes would have scooped me up in a second. That's pretty fast for one guy back then as a quarterback that ran 199. But on the football team, I was a quarterback. And then I was a guy that kicked the PAT. And then when we scored a touchdown, I was a guy that kicked the football for the half, you know, the, the kick they were after you to score a touchdown. And then on defense, I was a safety. So I pretty much played everywhere, you know. It was basically, we didn't have a lot of guys in that school. And uh, uh, so that's like I said, I love, I love, I love contact and I love taking hits on tackles, you know, stuff like that. Coming into safety, you get, get momentum going your way. And so, like I said, I really love football. I love the contact. That's probably the smartest thing I ever did with baseball. It's nice today you look at some of these football players, they're friends of mine like Dick Buckus and Jimmy uh, Fan and all these guys. I got a couple friends back east uh, uh, on the Eagles that, that now have that dementia problem, Connor McDonald and a couple other guys, you know. Yeah, it's horrible. So Bertie's not too bad. But the funniest guys, yeah, they uh, they kicked some hits, kicked some hits. Uh, I'll look at the way, uh, by going out there and, you know, playing after a concussion. I can't imagine anybody doing that. And, and, and I know, like, I talked to McMahon, uh, Jimmy McMahon's a great guy, and you want to hear a funny story about Jimmy McMahon. First time I met him, I met him some friends, and we had a golf tournament the next day. Um, I want to say it was for, it was for Ron Fano. So he shows up to play, and uh, he's walking by. I said, um, Jim, I, I don't want to interrupt anything, but where's your shoes? He was barefoot. He says, what do you mean? He said, where's your golf shoes? Well, I don't wear shoes. I can call out cold. I'm a barefoot. I go, what? He said, yeah, I'm golf barefoot. The only guy I've ever met the entire time I've ever played golf was barefoot when you played golf. He didn't wear any shoes. After he lived in the grass, it was wet or dry or whatever. He went out barefoot. 
I, I would laugh. I said, that's the one my kind of guy there. So, but, uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of guys that, that took some. I'm good friends with Bill Bergie, the guy that was the, uh, the hammer for the Philadelphia Flyers, you know, the Broad Street Boys. Yeah, of course. I, I checked with him about once a month, see how he's doing. He's okay. I said, I, I, yeah. And he said, I'm fine. He said, he said you, you know, I'm going. Right? He said, yeah, I know you're going, but I'm okay. I'm okay. So he said, yeah, Jay, I'm okay. Okay. He said, okay, I'm just worried about you, pal. And then, uh, uh, and that was healthy. And then, of course, Bill Bergie and I, yeah, we happened to partner up with the car dealership. Uh, and he used both of us as, uh, you know, part of their uh, spokesperson. We got a quick dodge start or whatever it was, dodge something. And so, well, Bill and I and uh, Dave Shelton and uh, a couple of the guys at Clark, Bobby Clark, we've been, we've been friends for a long time back there. Hey, once again, John Fiala here with Jay Johnstone. Now, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about what what got you into doing pranks. I mean, you're obviously always a loose guy, a guy probably that had a good sense of humor. But what what was it that got you into, let's say, doing pranks and being maybe like a little loose? Were you were you like that in high school, or is that something that you kind of took with you when you went pro? It kind of it just kind of came out. You know, when I first signed with the Angels, you know who they roomed me with as my first big league roommate? No. Jimmy Pearsall. I really? think I went into the nut house, not once, but twice. Exactly. And this is my first big league roommate on the road. And when he says, I'm rooming Johnstone with Pearsall because I want him to learn about outfield play and all that stuff like that. I want him to learn about the nuances and Pearsall is an outstanding defensive outfield. He's helped Ted Williams and everybody, okay? Yeah. And Pearsall would, you know, he'd walk around and put off with papers on it and point to his finger on it. He'd say, look, I'm saying, I'm saying, it's right here, right there. See that? Yeah, I'm saying. What do you say? Look, I'm okay, I'm okay. And he's the guy that went into the nut house twice, right? Yeah. He's walking around with cut off and his papers showing everybody that he's okay. <laughs> this, is, this is who they roomed me with on the road. And so, periodically, uh, not every night, but periodically on the road, at somewhere in the middle of the night, it could be 3 o'clock, the morning could be 2, could be 4, whatever. Uh, you know, we had double beds down in Hollywood. He said, hey, look, hey, look, you're awake, you're awake. Hey, look, hey, look, wake up, look, look, wake up. He said, you're awake now, you're awake. Yeah, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. You're like, you have no idea where you are. You're like, what, 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 what? I was thinking the room's on fire or something. He said, remember that play in the fifth inning? What? You know, we play the fifth inning in Nashville. You know, like I'm trying to get the fog eyes. What are you talking about? Come on, come on, wake up. I'm going to play the fifth inning in Nashville. Hey, I said, whoa, it's your bill. What were you done? you say out of all the things that you've done what would you what would you think was the best prank you ever played on a, on a teammate oh I was about 10 or 12 um, 
some we can't stand the air, but uh, uh, the one where we got uh, Tommy was sorted in his room and missed breakfast, that really pissed him off. <laughs> There's a guy that's never missed a meal in 40 years. Jerry Royce and I locked him, I mean, Steve Yeager and I locked him in his room and he couldn't get out, and we took the mouthpiece out of the two phones in his room, so when he called the operator, the operator, he could hear the operator, but the operator couldn't hear him. <laughs> He's screaming at the operator, how come I can hear you? You can't hear me. Cussing, cussing, cussing. Anyway, we had a 730 bus, but one of the, uh, this was, the, and we'd show up with breakfast, um, cafeteria in Dodger Town opened at 6 o'clock, so we get over there. Um, by 6, 6, 15, because they had Jaeger on a dime. He wanted to figure out before any of the coaches came in. So, so when he came out behind the line from the big partition, he had a half a grapefruit and a black cup of coffee on his tray. And he went down a whole line, flipping sausages, ham, bacon, he did all of his hands, pancakes, the whole thing, eating right out of the line, not even put it on his plate. And then he walked out of his tray, like I said, he had a half a grapefruit and a black cup of coffee. So the coaches would walk in and go, hey, hey, where do you go? Stand at that, buddy. And so, anyway, uh, uh, we did some horrendous things, but uh, that uh, when we made him this breakfast, all he did was bitch and moan for three hours on a bus ride up to Orlando, and we had to go play the twin. So that, that uh, he got me back. He stole all my clothes. I had to go back on the bus in Miami, where it was well worth it. <laughs> and now, now, what would you say? Like when you when you're you know you're you're obviously you know loose and you're you're thinking about pu putting something together. Um, it, does it all have to do with what, what type of teammate it is? Like, let's say somebody that may not have a sense of humor. That are you looking for the reaction, or what, you know, what really goes into putting together a prank on somebody? Is it is it something that maybe they've done? A lot of it's just the laugh. A lot of it's just the laugh. And there are some guys that uh, you know that, that probably you shouldn't do it to. You know, they don't have a sense of humor. They don't catch a light. Oh, I used to get a guy caught puts on the bench. I sneak down in for a lighted cigarette off the side of his shoe, and the cigarette would burn down, the leather would get hot, the guy started stamping the seat. I didn't get a umpire, uh, a Honishek, uh, I think it was Al I gave an umpire a hot foot. The thing he didn't know was me. Because he was calling the ball to strike some plate, you could see him stamp his foot on, on the ground like several times because it was getting hot, you know. Thank God nobody knew it was me on that one. I probably would have got to find and suspend it on that. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was just fun to be able to pull pranks and have, have fun with the guys. You know? And I had some pranks pulled on me. So, I mean, some guys tried to get me back. But I usually, usually was one step ahead of them, you know. And, uh, but it was just fun, the fun of doing it and getting your teammates involved. Everybody got involved. 
Now, even some of the guys, the older guys, and even the young kids like Steve Allen Sax. I mean, we used to, we used to pull, uh, we used to pull pranks on Sax, and, and when Sax and the Mike Marshall came into the league uh, that one year, um, I got the uh, state share from the doctor. And everybody has to take a, a full test. You know, you have to take a test when you uh, get physical when you get into the camp. Okay. And so I got the doctor's uh, stationery, and I had and I had one of the girls type a note: um, Steve Sachs and Mike Marshall. Um, due to irregularities in your blood test, we need you to bring in a urine sample tomorrow. Okay. So eight o'clock in the morning, Steve Sachs shows up with a with a urine sample, and Mike Marshall was same thing. And they said, what the hell are you talking about? He said, well, the doctor wanted a urine sample because he said something's all about blood. And, of course, then they came to the clubhouse and all the guys are cracking up, you know. He's so <laughs> had fun with the rookies, you know, all the time. Uh, it just, it just, you know, we would branch out. I'd come up with an idea. You know, I talked over Jager. I talked over Darv. I talked over Royce. I talked over Stanhouse, you know. I said, hey, let's do What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Let's go touch. And he said, where do you get all these ideas? I said, I don't know. I'm just trying to keep myself, you know. And uh, so, so we all we just had a great time as a team. It was a very very close knit team. The guys just back in the yeah, no question. Now, did you ever did you ever have a prank kind of backfire on you? Out of all the ones you did, like one of something maybe you intended to do something and didn't no, work out that way. I don't. Yeah, I don't ever think one ever did. Wow. I never had a prank because you know when I did that, I always made it look like someone else did. It. You know. Yeah. So. And a lot of guys are, some guys have had some heat on some of my pranks because, you know, a lot of times when you pull a prank, people expect you to stand around and watch and you'll make a laugh. A lot of times when I pull a prank, I'd leave. <laughs> I wouldn't be there. And uh, I had guys say, hey, we thought you'd pull that prank, but we know if you pull it, you'd be here watching. And so, you know, sometimes I did it, but I'd just leave the club out there be someone else, you know. I had an alibi, you know. So that, that kept me from getting in a lot of... Uh, uh, trouble later on, you know what I'm saying? But it was all fun. It was all part of the thing. Everybody, you know, even the story got influenced and pranks on guys, you know? So it's just one of those teenage uh, things that uh, we all bonded well together. And yeah. of course, the show, when we ended up winning the 81 World Series. Oh, exactly, and I'm sure it kept you guys together, and uh, you know, just to have that loose type of mentality has got to help out. And once again, John Pielli here with Jay Johnstone. Another question I wanted to ask you, because it, you know, it turns out, you know, you made a cameo in what was probably one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, what, you know, what would you say about your appearance you had in uh, in, in the original Naked Gun? You know what? Uh, being around Leslie Nielsen, I thought I was a prankster. This guy was like an A1 prankster. I mean, he was a great guy. He was cordial to everybody, but he loved pulling pranks on people. And he'd go by me, he had this little machine he put in his back pocket. Okay, it was a front machine. And then he had this little thing that was a square, and you push a button, and you hit the button. Oh, yeah. And when he did that, he'd jump. Oh, oh, excuse me. Sorry, sorry, ladies. I had beans for lunch. And he'd go out, people, and push that front button. And we would laugh our ass off. Because all these people would look at him like, oh, my God, you know. And they'd they go back, he'd push his little fart button, and sure enough, you know, people, oh, my God. Oh, yeah, this is, yeah, that bad stomach, you know. And we'd be looking, watching him, and this guy was the ultimate prankster. And he, he I thought I was good at pranks. I mean, this guy was able to pull a lot of great pranks on people when he was on a set. And I, and I was him do that. 
I said, why did you do that? He said, Jay, you know, life's full of fun and you might as well enjoy it. So this is kind of like the way I like to have fun. And I thought, wow, what a great thing. That's perfect, okay? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, get, I get other people involved, and we all have a great laugh about it. Yeah, no question. I got some of it from there, and you, know, you pick up different things. So. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, you know, just to, to have a chance to just be around, like, that atmosphere with all the different actors that were in it, you know, like, like you said, you you you're, you had just a small part in it, but I'm sure with all the filming and all the set and just being on there, you know, it was probably probably a great time to have with all with all the different characters. Oh, it was fun. It was fun. And you know, the idea of the whole thing is that one of my friends that I was assigned with the Angels and played with for a little bit uh, down at Rookie League, uh, ended up going to the Mets. His name was Dave Marshall. Huh? And that Dave had worked security before for some other people, and so I'm in the booth, you know, like, yeah, like if you're not in the scene, you're considering one of the great trailers. So I'm sitting in one of these trailers looking out towards the fence there, I'm looking at him and I said, damn, I know that wow, I'm seeing this guy walking from Starfield. Wow, I said, yeah, and I hadn't seen Dave Marshall in four or five years, you know. And here he comes, my, my roommate, when I were over uh, the instruction league, Dave, well, I couldn't believe it. So we developed our friendship, and now we talk about it once a week. And uh, it's just so funny. And he used to own a bar when he was in New York. He bought a bar called Marshall. And uh, so when I come into town, you know, after the gig, he played for the Mets, uh, yeah, we'd go to Marshall's and had some nice food. And Rusty stopped, had a bar there, so we drink with that one, you know. And both, both restaurants had good food. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no question about it. Now, you know, look, looking back all these years, yeah, you spent in baseball and out of baseball. Who, who would you think was your one, you know, most positive influence on you, the person, and you, the ball player? On me, the ball player? Yeah. Well, the one that had the most positive influence on a couple of times and wouldn't let me get down was my wife, Mary Jane. Okay, because she was always on me about that. I'd come home sometimes and let's say I didn't have the game I thought I should have had or I didn't do something that I thought I should have done. And she would, she would jump right on me and said, you know, you can't, uh, you know, keep me, uh, keep me up. And that was great. But, uh, there were so many guys along the road. I mean, uh, the older guys when I first got to the big leagues, uh, Jimmy Pearsall, um, there was Luke Burdett, Jack Stanford, there was Bob Rogers, there was Jim Fergosi. There were great mentors uh, of young players. See, I don't see that today in the big leagues. I don't see any of these young kids being mentored by the veterans. I don't see any of these veterans, you know, on the Dodgers or on the Angels going up to the, you know, maybe Pujols does it a little bit, okay, with the Angels. But, uh, you know, you got, uh, when you got Pujols and Hamilton, the veterans have been around a while for this guy, you've got to talk to some of these young kids. So sometimes when they get frustrated and get down, you got to talk them up. And the angels were great about that. The angel guys, the old guys, Bobby Knopf of, uh, of that era. And uh, I do not see any of that at all. And uh, I don't go to every game, and I don't see some of the games back east. But what I've seen with the Dodgers and Angels, there's no mentoring of any of the youth at all. And, uh, and uh, today, uh, I think that's, uh, that's what's missing. Because a lot of these young kids, you know, you break in a big leash, you're a little nervous, and uh, there's little nuances you can do. And, uh, you know, the little guys do the things they can talk to you about, what you can watch, what you can look for, you know. And uh, I like the Dodgers picked up uh, the uh, the deal when they got Mark McGuire's 80 coach because, you know, 
That's why I might have some of those troubles when they talk about the all those heroes and all that stuff like that. But he's a hell of a hitter. Right. Hit the ball a long way. Hit home runs. Yeah, it's pretty good idea. Uh, you know, if you're have that kind of swing, you're a home run hitter. You're not ten. But you know, this is somebody like Mark McGuire. Get some ideas. You know, you don't know everything when you're going to baseball, and, uh, and you're never too old to learn. That's one thing that they always say. You're never too old to learn. No, exactly, man. I, I, I listen to a lot of guys and got a lot of help from guys. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Jack. I can talk to pictures. That was the one thing that, like, like I said, I, I don't see. I, I, see, I don't see. Uh, I would go to some of our pitchers and say, if, if, "What do you think this guy's going to throw me?" I mean, you see me. What do you think this guy would throw? Or if you were pitching to me, what would you throw me to try and get me out? And he would say, "Well, watch this way. You know, I might try this or I might try that." That would give me an insight of what my own pitchers would think about me. You know, watching me hit all the time. You know, where they might pitch the ball and they might throw the ball. How, what kind of sequence they have in pitching? And that helped me a lot. Uh, one of the guys I talked to a lot about, he was Tony Gwynn. One guy that gave me great advice, I met with him for three hours underneath the bleachers in Boston, was a guy named Ted Williams. Couldn't have a much better head coach than that. Oh, wow. And uh, I had to sit under the bleachers because he didn't want the uh, local newspaper people in Washington to see him talking to a opposing player. <laughs> so the meeting we set up was underneath the uh, left field bleachers at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And nobody was around, and I met him out underneath the bleachers when the Angels came into Washington, and he was a manager at Washington, and we talked for three hours. In fact, when I first got to baseball, I wrote him a letter and introduced myself and asked him about hitting, and he wrote me back a three-page letter when I put in my book. So, you know, I've, I've always been on that um, idea that you're never too old to learn something, you know? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that, uh, that, that all those things help me. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know the Williams not too bad here. You know, Jerry Kershaw is a pretty damn good outfielder. And then uh, talking to Tony Gwynn, him being a left-hand hitter, I'm the left-hand hitter. Uh, and the line, both kind of line drivers, and he was pretty, gave me some great things you know, to think about to, uh, what he does, all these practices and things like that. I met him through an agent named John Boggs. Who, Represented Steve Rogers for a while, and uh, you know they, they were good friends. And uh, so, um, yeah, I, I I talk to people all the time. Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? All right, Jay, I appreciate you giving me some time, man. It's, it's been good, man. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of interesting things. Great going over some of the pranks and some of, you know, the stuff. And especially especially good hitting up on uh, Naked Gun, which I said, honestly, I think that was one of the best series of movies I've ever seen in my life. I did have a lot of fun. I got a lot of fun with that, I did. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, you have a great day, and uh, keep you posted. Thanks, Bob. Great catching up there with Jay Johnstone, and of course, you know he, the the guy. The guy has lived a fantastic life for just what he did on a baseball field, and you know doing the pranks and being part of movies. He's also written books, so uh, really great catching a guy with with what up with a guy who certainly has lived a full life. But once again, John Pielli. Passball Show, MTR, Radio Network, brought to you by JohnPLA.com. We're going to take a quick break and then finish off the program after this. I always wanted to work in sports. Kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. 
there's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We place thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe DeLisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And And we're we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Thanks uh, for tuning in. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish the program by playing an interview that I recorded on the MTR Morning Throwdown with Mike Sanfilippo. And we were talking a little bit about Tony Gwynn. Of course, this week we're commemorating the loss of the Baseball Hall of Famer and you know, kind of looking back on some of his accomplishments and what really made him one of the best players of his generation. So, so I'm going to play a couple excerpts of the interview that I recorded with Mike Sanfilippo. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this spot. And On with me right now, however, is John Pielli of the MTR Passball Show, heard here every Saturday morning from 10 a.m. to noontime. John, how you doing? Hey, what's going on, Mike? Always a pleasure to talk to you. All right, thanks. Okay, now, of course, the sad news that we heard yesterday uh, and it kind of reverberated through baseball uh, through much of the day, all the stations talking about everything. One of the class acts of baseball, at least in our time, John, Tony Gwynn passed away yesterday at the age of 54, way too young. That's even three years younger than me, uh, from cancer. Uh, John, uh, in the latter years of his life, Tony Gwynn was trying to raise a lot of awareness about the um, the problems that can come up from uh, smokeless tobacco. Yeah, he was, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it was part of the reason that uh, you know he ended up uh, getting the cancer that ended up taking his life. And I think uh, a lot of times when you when people end up dealing with uh, problems and relations to things that they've done, and uh, let's be honest, you know, nobody's perfect. I mean, it doesn't doesn't diminish anything about Tony Gwynn the person, mm-hmm. but it just it brings you back to reality, the fact that he's a human being just like anybody else, and. I think we've all made decisions that we, you know, we wish we we didn't make, and some of them have more permanent implications on the rest of our lives. And uh, you know, you can just summarize it by saying that you know, Tony Gwynn was a guy that probably had a lot to offer 
uh, to baseball as uh, you know the person that uh, you know as an ambassador of the game and the way the way he played the game and the way the reason that he represents so much about what's right about Major League Baseball and it's a shame to see uh, you know the, the expression only the good die young and uh, you know Tony yeah. Gwynn certainly did the other day at the age of 54. You know, uh, you're right about the way he carried himself. Mr. Padre uh, played, um, you know, all these things that uh, were t that are being talked about as far as all the numbers. I'm not going to sit here and talk about all the numbers that he put up. I mean, everybody watching all of the uh, shows yesterday are well aware of um, all of it as on-the-field exploits. But one thing that really is eye-catching is the fact that 20 years in the major leagues, or actually 19 years, I believe, total in the major leagues, and all 19 full years, and all of them with one team. And with the, with the Padres, uh, he was he was in two World Series with the Padres, but uh, never got anywhere. Um, as a matter of fact, I think they only won one out of nine games played in the World Series. Um, but still, a guy who stayed his entire career with with San Diego. Actually, during his tenure, there were times he could have waited out, become an unrestricted free agent. I know the Players Association wanted that from him, so he can, quote unquote, uh, set a new market uh, value. And you know, uh, I you know, just stay with the team. He liked playing and living in San Diego, and I think that is something that a lot of players can uh, can uh, take a lesson from, as far as loyalty to an organization. Yeah, no question. I tell you, you look at, uh, let's say, what Derek Jeter has done with the Yankees playing his career with the one organization. And uh, one of the guys that Tony Gwynn certainly's career mirrors um, the, the career of Cal Ripken because they played around the same time. And what they both have in common is the fact that they spent their entire career with one organization. They represent just one team. And it's something that, uh, you know, you see with free agency, the way it's changed the game now that you don't see so much of that anymore. And that's one thing that stands out about Tony Gwynn. But if you don't mind, Mike, there's a couple things I do want to point out. Go ahead. That I think I think, I think I, I get overlooked. And it's unfortunate that we waited until the passing of the man. Obviously a baseball Hall of Famer, one of the better pure hitters that the game has ever seen. But I, I, think, I think it's easy to lump him in with the whole generation of other players. But... What, I, what I'm going to try to do here is show how Tony Gwynn really was one player in a single generation. There's a guy that for his entire career, which almost spanned 20 seasons, struck out 400 times in his career. His entire career, right. which is an average of, uh, you know, which, which you see players can do that in a season and a half or two seasons now. <laughs> so, he, you know, he, he, was a, he was a pure hitter. You look at, uh, you compare him, let's say, to a Wade Boggs or a Rod Carew, but the reason I think he was better than most of those players is the fact that if you look at his career stats year in and year out, it's nothing but consistency. Yeah. He hit 338 for his career. And if you jump on baseballreference.com and look at where he ranks 20th all time in batting average, and you look at the 19 players that have had a higher career batting average than 338, which was his career average, you'll be astounded because there's nobody close that played in the generation or generations after or even a couple generations before Tony Gwynn. 
and I don't think uh, a lot of baseball fans appreciate what a 338 career batting average means. It means essentially if you hit 320, you got to hit 350 the next season to stay up with it. Mm-hmm. If you hit 300, you got to hit 360 or 370 to maintain the 338 career average. Right. And I just, I just think, I just think that a lot, a lot of this stuff and his impact on the history of Major League Baseball, I don't think was fully was fully discussed and fully, you know, I don't think he got all the credit that he deserved for, for what he did while he was around on this earth. And unfortunately, now that he has passed, all of a sudden people are starting to look it back and like, hey, this guy might have been one of the better players of all time. He might have been, as a pure hitter, the, the, best, the best of that in his entire generation and maybe the best pure hitter since Ted Williams. When you look at his average... He averaged 209 hits a year, you know. And like you said, if there's ever one year where you would have an off year for him and maybe get 180 hits, he would have to just to make it up to get 230 the next year just to get back to that average. So that ties right into what you just said about that 338 batting average. And he only averaged nine home runs a year, but who cares? I mean, the guy was just a, a pure hitter. And was very close to Ted Williams. And, um, you know, and he was a guy that you could, you were absolutely clueless on how to set your defense. Because in watching a lot of the shows yesterday and talking to a lot of the people who played against them, both managers and opposing players, if you ever try to set a defense against them, he would, and, and you tried to pitch him in a way to hit into that defense, because nobody ever put, put the shift on him, but you know what I'm talking about. He would just spray the ball the other way at will. You know, uh, you know, hit him where well, he... Mike, well, one, thing, one thing that stands out is the fact that he was probably the only hitter, and you know, maybe the only left-hand hitter that you look at that has played uh, from the days of the shift, which you could say the shift probably started around the time of Ted Williams, right. that you, you you absolutely couldn't shift against because his his hitting approach was to hit the ball where you weren't because right. he had that ability. He could drive the ball up the middle. Um, I was watching the, uh, the Mets game yesterday, and uh, they were talking, uh, one, of the, one of the sideline reporters was talking about uh, one, something that Bob Guerin, who uh, Bob Guerin had played with Tony Gwynn, as you know many other players um, during his career did, and he was he was hitting off of a of a, uh, a slow pitch machine, and the thing must have been throwing the ball about 50 miles an hour, and he was he was shooting them right right back through the middle, and it, it's just proof that he he pretty pretty much perfected the art of putting the ball where somebody wasn't. Mm-hmm. And you look at most, most left-hand hitters uh, are just looking to drive the ball, you know, pull the ball. Um, even some of you know, the guys like Ryan Howard could just square a ball up and drive it the other way, but you don't necessarily have control of exactly where the ball is going. And that's one thing that Tony Gwynn did. And I think in his sleep, he could, he could hit 320 or 330. And, you know, maybe if he was healthy enough, he, could, he probably could have – he probably could have played another four or five seasons at that pace with just the knowledge that he had of hitting a baseball. And he knew exactly what he wanted in his bat. He, he, he used one of the one of the, the, the more smaller bats at that time. Um, maybe that helped him. And he also he knew his bat because uh, I was there was one segment. Yes, I was watching. I don't know whether it was Buster only or somebody from ESPN. I, don't quote me on that. That there was at one point 
they blindfolded him and they asked him, they would put one bat in one hand and another bat that wasn't his in the other hand that was almost exact as far as weight, circumference or whatever. And 10 times out of 10, blindfolded, he picked out his bat. I mean, the guy was just, you know, his eyesight was incredible. He had 2015 vision, I believe. So that means he, he saw the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand and in a split second, he knew what the pitch was. I mean, I mean, he was just incredible at that. Um, but do you think, John, that playing out in San Diego and playing on mostly mediocre teams was one of the reasons why, even though he had some incredible seasons, where he never really came close to winning the MVP? I mean, uh, the closest he came to, and I'm looking at it right now, was back in 1984, the Padres won one of the Padres' two World Series seasons, he finished third in the MVP uh, voting, and that's the closest he ever came uh, when he hit 351. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, do you think that hurt him playing at San Diego as far as getting these kind of uh, uh, awards in baseball? Well, I think what hurt him in regards to getting MVP awards was the fact that he wasn't a home run hitter. Right. I mean, you know, unless you have a somebody, let's say, like a George Brett, and even George Brett had his share of home runs, so he might not be the prime example, but, you know, if somebody was approaching 400 in a season or hit, you know, 370, 380, they may get more credit. And those, if you find out, those are the years that, that Gwynn would rank up higher amongst the MVP award uh, voting, though he never got enough respect. But, um, I think I think one thing that he held, that was held against him was the fact that he didn't hit for a lot of power, and he wasn't a, he, he he wasn't a singles hitter. He had over 500 doubles. Um, he was a generally a number three hitter in his lineup, uh, the best player on his team, uh, you know, 16 time All Star. So I mean, there were there were things that you know showed that he was acknowledged for what he did, and there was things that weren't. But, but I think the thing that stands out that you look back at the career of Tony Gwynn and you just realize that there might not be another pure hitter like this ever again. And I think a lot of people said that for years when, uh, when Ted Williams came through his career from 1939 to 1961, that uh, he, he, had, he had an approach to hitting, Ted Williams did, that was what was different from the way a lot of other people hit, that he had the ability to hit the ball where people weren't. And though he was at certain times considered a dead pull hitter. So that was Mike Sanfilippo speaking with me on the MTR morning throwdown, of course, about this, the passing of Tony Gwynn. And, uh, you know, if we could summarize it by one thing, by saying that th- this guy was a player of a generation and for many generations to come. Big thanks to Tommy Herr and Jay Johnstone for being guests on this program. We'll be back with you next week right here on the Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Don't forget to like my Facebook page, JohnPielli.com, and check out uh, my website, Bases Empty Blog, all the archives, and all my interviews with current and former MLB players. See you next week. Rock over London, rock on Chicago. American Airlines, we mean business in Chicago.